Deep Sea Divers Part 9 of Careers of Danger and Daring This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by E. Lee Careers of Danger and Daring by Cleveland Moffat 5 in which the author puts on a diving suit and goes down to a wreck. One day I asked Atkinson, as master diver of the wrecking company, if he would let me go down in his diving suit, and he said yes very promptly, with an odd little smile, and immediately began telling of people who, on various occasions, had teased to go down, and then had backed out at the critical moment, sometimes at the very last just as the face glass was being screwed on it was a bit disconcerting to me for atkinson seemed to imply that i of course would be different from such people and go down like a veteran whereas i was as yet only thinking of going down there's a wreck on the hackensack said he it's a coal barge sunk in twenty feet of water we'll be pumping her out tomorrow Come down about noon, and I'll put the suit on you. Then he told me how to find the place, and spoke as if the thing were settled. I thought it over that evening, and decided not to go down. It was not worth while to take such a risk. It was a foolish idea. Then I changed my mind. I would go down. I must not miss such a chance. It would give me a better understanding of this strange business, and there was no particular danger in it only a little discomfort. Then I wavered again, and thought of accidents to divers, and tragedies of diving. What if something went wrong? What if the hose burst, or the air valve stuck? Or suppose I should injure my hearing in spite of Atkinson's assurance? I looked up a book on diving, and found that certain persons are warned not to try it. Full-blooded men, very pale men, men who suffer much from headache, men subject to rheumatism, men with poor hearts or lungs, and others. The list seemed to include everybody, and certainly included me on at least two counts. Nevertheless, I kept to my purpose. I would go down. It was rising tide the next afternoon, an hour before slackwater. Slackwater is the diver's harvest time when the crew of the steam-pump Dunderberg gathered on deck to witness my descent and assist in dressing me, for no diver can dress himself. The putting on of a diving suit is like squeezing into an enormous pair of rubber boots reaching up to the chin and provided with sleeves that clutch the wrist tightly with clinging bands to keep out the water. Thus encased, you feel as helpless and oppressed as a tightly stuffed sawdust doll and you stand anxiously while the men put the gasket, a rubber joint, over your shoulders and make it fast with thumbscrews under a heavy copper collar. Next, you step into a pair of thirty-pound iron shoes that are strapped over your rubber feet, and now they lead you to an iron ladder that reaches down from rail to water. You lift your feet somehow over the side, right foot, left foot, and feel around for the ladder rungs. Then you bend forward on the deck, face down as a man would lay his neck on the block. 
This is to let the helpers make fast around your waist the belt that is to sink you presently with its hundred pounds of lead. Under this belt you feel the lifeline noose hugging below your arms, a stout rope trailing along the deck that will follow you to the bottom and haul you back again safely, let us hope. Beside it trails the precious black hose that brings you air. Now Atkinson himself lifts the copper helmet with its three goggle eyes and prepares to screw it on. The men watch your face sharply. They have seen novices weaken here. Want to leave any address? says Captain Taylor cheerfully. I admit in my own case that at this moment I felt a very real emotion. I watched two lads at the air pump wheels as if they were executioners, though both had kind faces and one was sucking placidly at a clay pipe. I thought how good it was to stay in the sunshine and not go down under a muddy river in a diving suit. Wait a minute, I cried out and went over the signals again. Three slow jerks on the lifeline to come up and so on. Now the helmet settles down over my head and jars against the collar. I see a man's hands through the round glasses crisscrossed over with protecting wires. He is screwing the helmet down tight. Now he holds the face glass before my last little open window. Go ahead with the pump, calls a queer voice, and forthwith a Swedish warmish breath enters the helmet, and I hear the wheeze and groan of the cylinders. If you get too much air, pull once on the hose somebody calls. If you don't get enough, pull twice. I wonder how I am to know whether I am getting too much or not enough, but there is no time to find out. I have just a moment for one deep breath from the outside when there is no more outside for me. The face glass has shut it off, and now grimy fingers are turning this glass in its threads, turning it hard, and hands are fussing with hose and lifeline, making them fast to lugs on the helmet face, one on each side, so that the hose drops away under my left arm and the lifeline under my right. Then I feel a sharp tap on my big copper crown, which means I must start down. That is the signal. I pause a moment to see if I can breathe, and find I can. One step downward, and I feel a tug at my trousers as the air feed plumps them out. Step by step, I enter the water. Foot by foot, the river rises to my waist, to my shoulders, to my head. With a roar in my ears and a flash of silver bubbles, I sink beneath the surface. I reach the ladder's end, loose my hold on it, and sink, sink through an amber-colored region, slowly, easily, and land safely, thanks to Atkinson's careful handling, on the barge's deck just outside her combings and can reach one heavy foot over the depth of her hold where tons of coal await rescue. A jerk comes on the lifeline and I answer that all is well. Indeed I am pleasantly disappointed thus far in my sensations. It is true there is a pressure in my ears but nothing of consequence, no doubt deeper it would have been different and I feel rather a sense of exhilaration from my air supply than any inconvenience. At every breath, the whole suit heaves and settles with the lift and fall of my lungs. I carry my armor easily. It seems as if I have no weight at all, yet the scales would give me close to 400 pounds. 
the fact is though i did not know it my friends up in the daylight were pumping me down too much air this in their eager desire to give enough and i was in danger of becoming more buoyant than is good for a diver in fact if the clay-pipe gentleman had turned his wheel just a shade faster i should have travelled up in a rush four hundred pounds and all i learned afterward that atkinson had an experience like this one day when a green tender mixed the signals and kept sending down more air every time he got a jerk for less atkinson was under a vessel's keel patching a hole and he hung on there as long as he could saying things to himself while the suit swelled and swelled then he let go and came to the surface so fast that he shot three feet out of the water and startled the poor tender into dropping his line and taking to his heels needless to say that sort of thing is quite the reverse of amusing to a diver who must be raised and lowered slowly say at the speed of a lazy freight elevator to escape bad head pains from changing air pressure i sat down on the deck and took note of things the golden color of the water was due to the sunshine through it and the mud in it a fine effect from a mean cause for two or three feet i could see distinctly enough i noticed how red my hands were from the squeeze of rubber wristbands i felt the diving suit over and found the legs pressed hard against my body with the weight of water i searched for the hammer and nail they had tied to me and proceeded to drive the ladder into the deck i knew that divers use tools under water the hammer the saw the crowbar etc almost entirely by sense of feeling and i wanted to see if i could do so the thing proved easier than i had expected i hit the nail on the head nearly every time nor did the water resistance matter much my nail went home and i was duly pleased i breathed quicker after this slight exertion and recalled atkinson's words about the great fatigue of work under water I stood up again and shuffled to the edge of the wreck. Strange to think that if I stepped off, I should fall to the bottom, unless the lifeline held me, just as surely as a man might fall to the ground from a housetop. I would not rise as a swimmer does, and then I felt the diver's utter helplessness. He cannot lift himself. He cannot speak. He cannot save himself, except as those lines save him. Let them part. Let one of them choke and he dies instantly and now the steady braying of the air pump beat sounded like cries of distress and the noise in my ears grew like the roar of a train all divers below hear this roaring and it keeps them from any talking one with another when two are down together they communicate by taps and jerks as they do with the tenders above i bent my head back and could see a stream of bubbles large ones rising rising from the escape valve like a ladder of glistening pearls and clinging to my little windows were myriad tiny bubbles that rose slowly the old hackensack was boiling all about me and i saw how there may well be reason in the belief of some that this ceaseless ebullition from the helmet often accompanied by a phosphorescent light in the bubbles is the diver's safeguard against creatures of the deep well i had had my experience and all had gone well a delightful experience a thing distinctly worth the doing it was time to feel for the lifeline and give the three slow pulls where was the ladder now i was a little uncertain and understood how easily a diver even old-timers have this trouble may lose his bearings there 
one, two, three, and the answer comes straightway down the line. One, two, three. That means I must stand ready. They are about to lift me. Now the rope tightens under my arms, and easily, slowly, I rise, rise, and the golden water pales to silver, the bubbles boil faster, and I come to the surface by the ladder's side and grope again for its rungs. How heavy I have suddenly become without the river to buoy me. This climbing the ladder is the hardest task of all. It is like carrying two men on one's back. Again I bend over the deck and see hands moving at my windows. A twist, a tug, and off comes the face glass with a suck of air. The test is over. You done well, is the greeting I receive, and the divers welcome me almost as one of their craft. Henceforth I have friends among these quiet men, whose business it is to look danger in the eye, and look they do without flinching as they fare over river and sea, and under river and sea, in search of wrecks. End of section 9